So, welcome back to CultureCast, and I was talking about Immanuel Kant, and this is part two of the Enlightenment and the subject. And Immanuel Kant is going to try to reconcile these two images of humanity that, that emerge during the Enlightenment. You have on the one hand, humanity is proud, humanity is as anthropocentric, humanity as the center of the universe, the Copernican turn, all right? And then on the other hand, you have humanity being leveled down, humanity um, being subject to these natural laws that Newton established, trying to reduce the universe to these simple formula, uh, the simple mathematical formula. So Kant tries to uh, address competing concerns. The way he does this is through a kind of idealism. It's called transcendental idealism. The idea is that there are conditions of possible experience. To have experience, you must have a certain cognitive structure. I left off on the idea of an I think. You must have an I think to have representations. You can't have uh, experience and not have an I think. Could you imagine an experience where there is no I, where it's just like raw perception and there's no unity in a single self-consciousness, all right? Uh, also, space and time. You can have an experience that is not in a certain space and at a certain time. Uh, moreover, our experience is not like this light show where we have all these different fragments of different blotches of light. Our experience has a unity to it. Our experience has a certain structure and a coherence, which is why we need the concepts of, for instance, substance. We have uh, not just random blotches of color, but substances with attributes. So I look at my room and I see uh, a wall, and that's a substance with an attribute of a color, all right? We see the, the, the world in a certain kind of structure with things, with properties, not just these random blotches of color. We also have the concept of cause. Cause is an a priori. It's this uh, structure we bring. A priori means before. We bring to experience. We can't perceive reality but for causation. Again, our experience is not of this random light show of fragments and blotches of color. It's, uni it's united, where event A causes event B, all right? And so causation is part of the structure of our cognition. And so there are laws of experience. This is how Kant deals with you. We have causation as part of our experience of time. So time is successive, and events succeed one another in time through the structure of causation. Because there has to be a ground for why one event succeeds but does not precede another. Okay? And substance has to be also a ground of time because we need something that persists to understand change. We need to see something persistent, a substance, to understand how change unfolds over time. Okay? So we need um, – Kant changes the old metaphysics. The old metaphysics was rationalist. You could use logic by itself to understand reality. 
you could use logical connections to understand real connections in the world. Kant says, no, that's not going to work. We're not going to use logic to understand the nature of reality. Instead, we're going to outline the conditions of possible experience. Okay? The categories of causation and substance, the concepts of causation and substance, have their basis in human cognition. They're not part of the actual ontological world. Our experience requires these, stru these structures. So Kant overcomes Hume by locating causation as a necessary structure of experience. Why isn't causation just a random um, conjunction of events that happen to be associated with each other but may change at any time? It is lawful because it's a structure of possible experience. A must precede and cause B always because that's how we experience things. It's a necessary connection built into our experience. So Hume's problem is addressed by locating causation as a cognitive structure. So it's idealism based upon the mind that these concepts, and also space and time, they're recast, reformulated from ontological structures of being itself to structures of the understanding and of the sensibility. So it's anthropocentric in Kant as well. So what happens is that because of this idealism, we now have structures that change the way we perceive reality. What happens is that we now have appearances. What we perceive are appearances, not ding on sick, thing in itself, German for thing in itself, ding on sick. The thing in itself is not part of our experience because we're translating, as it were, the input from outside of us within these cognitive structures of causation and space and time. And so what we're getting are appearances, not the thing in itself, not ultimate reality, independent of any kind of sensibi sensibility or, 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 or our understanding. So what we perceive are appearances. This is the revolution that Kant brings. This is how he reconciles the two images of humanity as proud and self-assertive and humanity, by the same token, as reduced and stripped down to a mere machine. Because, listen, we perceive lawful structures as appearances. We perceive the Newtonian mechanistic worldview as an appearance. This means that it does not capture all of reality as a thing in itself. And so the possibility is there for us to have free will in the domain of things in themselves, beyond appearances. We experience ourselves as determined and as part of the lawful structure of the Newtonian worldview. But as a thing in itself, 
we can be free. We can have unconditioned causality by which we can initiate our own actions as a thing in itself. There can be a God because experience does not encompass everything. It's an appearance based upon ideal structures, ideal transcendental structures of causation, substance, space, time. So Kant reconciles the Newtonian worldview saving the metaphysics of nature, of causation, and substance from the empiricism of Hume, and at the same time, preserving the religious image of humanity as free, as having a soul, and as under God, through the reduction of our experience to a mere appearance, because it's based upon cognitive processing, cognitive ideal structures. We can have God and free will in the domain of things in themselves. We cannot experience those things. We cannot do metaphysics about them through theoretical reason, but through practical reason, through our actual behavior, we can access them because when you study more Kant, you realize that because we have the moral law, we also know that we're free. And because we're free, we know that there is a God. Okay? So, and also that, that we are immortal. There, there's a God and that we are immortal as well. So the immortal soul, saving again, this notion of human dignity that the Enlightenment had taken away, taken away our immortal, our immortal soul by reducing us to a machine. So now you, now you see the crisis that the Enlightenment created and Kant comes in. Not that he's a perfect philosopher. Not that you can't challenge him. But he did something very amazing by reconciling these two views of humanity. So I'll close on that note. I uh, hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Check out the first part of this of this uh, sub sub uh, component on the human subject, and I will see you uh, next time. Thank you.